Hello. Welcome to Psychopath in Your Life. This is episode number 55. I'm your host, Diane Emerson. I'm the author of the book, Psychopaths in Our Lives, My Interviews, which is available via Amazon, iBooks, and other platforms. Today, I'd like to read you a story that really puts a lot of the pieces together of what a victim goes through, but I'd also like to introduce the term projective identification. What this means, it's a term that was introduced by Melanie Klein to describe the process wherein by a close relationship as between mother and child, lovers or therapist and patient, parts of the self may in unconscious fantasy be thought of as being forced into the other person. And this story will help to um, put the actual work uh, wording together for you. So let's start off. It's going to be a multi-part um, story here, and it came through my forum many years ago, but the relevance is very, very important for people involved in relationships to try to understand. So here we go. I met my undiagnosed psychopathic partner at the end of 1990. I moved in with him after three months of dating. My mind was gone by the third month of living with him. By the 11th month, after continually mind-numbing brutality, degradation, humiliation, sadistic torture, and complete destruction of my financial status, obliviation of my life's activities and friendships, total isolation. After all of that, he came home one day and for no apparent reason informed me that he had just given two weeks notice to vacate the apartment and I had two weeks to get the hell out. I was in complete and total shock. We had just returned from a trip to another area to scope out the job market and see if we wanted to move there. I paid for the trip, helped him make up a resume. He smiled and told me he was moving to that town and I was not. He threw out a bunch of glib and cliched lines, the kind that he might make to a one-night stand. It was harder on him than it was on me. We just weren't compatible, and it's sad. I tried my best, no hard feelings, all the while exhibiting a stone face with cold eyes along with a callous smirk. He followed that up with a few more, you're a codependent. First time I heard that word. You don't love me. You just need me. You're just addicted to relationships. I'm sick of your misery. You're no fun to be around and I want my life back. I deserve to be happy. Then he tells me he wants to have sex with me one last time for old time's sake, but he's not sure that it would be fair to me. He asked what he could do to make it easier on me. As a side note, I was also then reminded I owed him half the rent for that month. It was the last couple of hundred dollars I had left to my name. His mother had loaned him $30,000 with which to move. He didn't need money from me, but he seemed to enjoy the fact that I was so controlled and intimidated and in shock, it was easy to get me to hand it over. Looking back, it's clear that the whole thing was staged for optimal effect. 
At the time, I guess that was the most degrading, brutal way he could think of to discard me. Little did I know then, his final encore years later would top that by a million percent. He made a big show of having all of his family and friends come over to help him pack up in front of me while I am all alone, having been smeared behind my back to all of our mutual friends who now looked at me funny whenever they saw me, convinced, I think they were convinced I was insane and isolated from my own support network. There was no one left I could reach out to. During the packing of things, he would periodically come over to me, holding out some item I had bought for him, and ask me if I didn't mind if he donated it to charity. I called one of the remaining friends I had thousands of miles away on the other coast. He must have been familiar with this type of character, for he told me, do not cry or show any emotion in front of him. It feeds him. He's after a reaction, but I could not help but cry. And I did beg him to tell him tell me why he was doing this. He would laugh every time and stare at me with those cold, scary lizard eyes. My friend stayed on the phone with me while I packed and walked me through what I was going to do next, which is a blessing for I truly could not think at all by that point. I had no clue why he was doing this. None of it made any sense to me. My friend told me to use my frequent flyer miles to buy a ticket home and come stay at his place where I could plan out what I needed to do next. I bought my ticket, moved my belongings into storage myself, went down to school and withdrew from my classes and flew home a few days later. I was a complete zombie. I had lost 15 pounds in two weeks and my weight kept plummeting. The phone call started from him within a few weeks after I moved. Thankfully, I barely remember the specifics of those conversations. I know there was a lot of glib and humiliating content in them, and I could tell he was enjoying my pain. I'm pretty sure I did a lot of pleading. I wasn't getting any answers, though. After several such calls, he tells me how much he misses me and suggests I move myself back to where we were and get a place across town and date him from time to time so that we can see if we're compatible and can work things out. I cannot comprehend what they get out of screwing people's emotions and entire lives like this. Is it power? Enjoyable? Because they have no emotions that can be toyed with? And the, let's see if we can work it out when there was never any defined issue to begin with. What is that all about? I did end up moving myself back to where we were three months after the psychopath moved out on me. I lived across town as he had suggested. I was completely beaten down and brainwashed. Financially wiped out, my self-esteem no longer existed. Although I could still sense the disrespect and degradation in the way he treated me during that time, I was a toy he was playing with, which he could treat any way he liked, knowing I would still be there. My sense of identity and connection to self had been so solid before the year I lived with him and the ensuing interactions, yet I could not even remember who I had been and had no understanding of the constant crisis as the psychopath loved to point out to me. 
My life was now in constant crisis. I believed him when he informed me that my condition was self-induced. That pathology had been introduced via the trauma abuse, but I am shocked remembering back at how easy it had been to instill and enforce such self-doubt in me. I had thought I was much stronger than that. I am even more shocked he was able to accomplish the same kind of damage using the same kind of tactics 10 years later. My reactions caused me to question my sanity. If my identity could become so eroded that my self-esteem could be so easily influenced by outside sources, surely I must be unstable. But now I know the isolation, instability, and manipulation of perception contributed greatly to that kind of reaction. In coercing my move back, he had succeeded in fostering a total dependence and rendered himself indispensable. I had become molded into the perfect accomplice to my own victimization. I carried the shame he had dumped on me. I felt immense guilt, as though I embodied defectiveness, and I felt the need to hide myself away so as not to subject the world to my ugliness. He saw me when he felt like it but would never allow me to come around if I needed him. He would allow me over to his place only when he wanted sex, but I was not allowed to shower or spend the night. He told me I was crazy, depressed, miserable to be around, a failure, and needed to see a psychiatrist. I believed him. I felt so humiliated by my own defectiveness and worthlessness never totally correlating them with the ongoing abuse, but instead attributing them to my own failure and defectiveness. I was told repeatedly, you can't live with me. I'm not really sure if I even asked. Also, why can't you accept what I am able to give? I am afraid of your mental illness. You are unstable. He acted as though I were insane, and he was doing me a favor to allow me around. I was not invited to or allowed to participate in his activities with friends or family events. His friends were encouraged to think of me and treat me in a similar manner, and it just became customary practice. His mother, who kept in contact with me, did the same continually reinforcing how mentally defective I was, pushing her odd, new-age, self-help, and psychological dogmas onto me in the name of guiding me for my own good. With the two of them playing off each other's pathology and continuing to target me, as they had begun the year before, I had no outside perspective, and their projections and assertions about me seemed like the legitimate reality, especially in light of his mother's credentials. I have come to learn that many of the abusive beliefs held, tactics he used, and projections he flung at me had come directly from his mother. He would often parrot her words when speaking to me, so I became able to recognize that he was imitating her and had adopted part of her as a persona to use for himself. Both of them continued to direct my attention inward, 
to examining my failings and flaws, and I was repeatedly told that I was responsible for what was going on. To believe otherwise would be to offload my personal responsibility. A conversation with either of them was heavy on the verbal abuse. Twisted, circular logic, word salad, bizarre distortions, but paradoxically conveying faux concern about my well-being. Between the lines, covert hostility battered me so intensely, I could feel like a rapid succession of little punches one after the next. Abusers define reality and enforce the reality they have defined. I had forgotten that I had known that. They seemed to bond with each other through the experience of jointly defining, controlling me while denying the abuse was taking place. I doubted my own sanity from that point forward. It was particularly painful as I entirely believed I must be the most effective human on the planet. I wish I had known about projective identification then. My God, it would have explained so much the two of them had jointly engaged in projecting their collective insanity onto me while interacting with me as though I really was their projection. His mother repainted the abuse into a situation of mutual relationship issues. Incompatibility and character flaws in me rather than more accurate power control, unrighteous dominion type situation, specifically created by the psychopath. My mind felt like it had been knotted into a pretzel. I sought out the help I supposedly needed from a psychiatrist who prescribed horrible antidepressants. He never asked if I was being abused, which had the effect of making me extremely depressed, feel like I wanted to die, anxious, unable to eat, clouded my thinking even more. They did not make me feel happy or able to sleep or serene in any way. They made me quite ill, actually. That doctor prescribed the pills, but never monitored me. I never should have considered taking them. They adversely affected my ability to function, which I imagine is probably the case when the inability to function cope is really related to ongoing abuse and trauma. Once again, my decision to even try them was influenced by the brainwashing of the psychopath and his mom. Sad to say, I believed them, that there was something seriously wrong with me, and if I could just get myself fixed, I would be acceptable as a human being. This was not my own thinking, but rather their beliefs incorporated into my own psyche. I had adopted my abuser's perspective, and in doing so, unwittingly validated their distorted projections of insanity, defectiveness, enabling them to feel justified, and then continuing to treat me accordingly. Change yourself was the psychopath mother's mantra to me. Find what's broken in you. Well, I'll close this one for now, and I will continue next time. But I'd like to point out there's several things here. One is that if you are taking medication for depression, do not stop suddenly will have some severe side effects. And I'm not a doctor, so I would really recommend that you consult one before you were to stop taking some of these medications. In this case, I'm only relaying what this person's experience was. And even though I had the same experience, each person has their own path. 
I don't want you to miss the point of this conversation here. It's really about how this projective identification can explain a whole lot about what goes on in relationship with psychopaths. And you can take a person who is very well-functioning, doing quite well in their lives, and through all of these very, very obvious ways in looking back, but not at the time. So let's keep that point very clear. If we could see what was going on at the time, it would make it easy to get away. But there's a very subversive way that all this brainwashing starts. And it starts out one small thing at a time. So I will conclude this for now, but please be aware that um, I will continue the story next week. And I do read all of your emails, but I do need to reiterate that you can go to psychopathandyourlife.com and there is a private email box there if you select the button contact where you can communicate with me directly without having to use your email address or you can email me directly. But in either case, I do need you to be clear with me that if you want me to share your story, please say it's okay to share my story. And likewise, I do read and answer all of my emails, but you need to be sure and tell me it's okay to answer this email because otherwise I'm not really able to because I really can't cross that boundary. So I do thank you very much for all of your emails. And if there's any way you can help to support the show, the link is below. I've also included some information about projective identification. So you might try to research that and see if it fits for you and something that you might consider. Um, because remember, people don't start out looking to harm themselves. They start out because they're kind and caring people. So the point of all this isn't to try to get people to not be kind and caring because certainly the world needs more kind and caring people. The idea of the whole podcast is to help you to identify patterns and take a look at things that when you're in the midst of things, it's very complicated because with the severe PTSD and all the other self-doubt, the, the issues that this person is describing here can play a part in a person's mind that it can be really easy for someone who's never been subjected to this to brush it off as you're stronger than that. How did you let that happen to you? Well, I'm here to tell you that it can happen, but by sticking together and continuing to tell your stories, we can all move. There, There is healing. I do know that people can be healed from all of this, and it is possible. But without support, it makes it a lot harder. So let's try to stick together. And I'm honored to hear your stories. And if you have one that you'd like to share, it was the original format for my form many years ago. It was based on people helping other people by sharing their stories. And I still believe that's a very important part of it because your stories help other people's stories. And you're not alone. I'm here to help support you in any way that I possibly can. So anyway, so goodbye for now. And I'll continue with this story next week and be safe out there. And remember, try to do just one kind thing for yourself this week. Even if it means just sitting alone and thinking for a few minutes, put on some music that you might enjoy. And remember, there is hope. There is life after being with a psychopath. And there's a very clear path out. But together, we need to try to find that path together. 
and I'm here to help you in any way that I possibly can. So goodbye for now, and I'll look forward to chatting with you next week. Be safe out there. Mm-hmm.